Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We're turning to God's Word this morning, as we have a privilege to do each week, and we're continuing this morning in this series that we're coming towards the end of, looking at what the Bible tells us about our worship. We'll have two more Sundays after this morning in this series. So far, we've looked at the questions of who we worship and why we worship and what is corporate worship. And now we're looking at this question of how we worship. And when we look at Scripture, what we immediately find is that there are two important answers to the question of how we worship. One answer focuses on the inward state of the worshiper. You know that in the Old Testament, God repeatedly condemned Israel for drawing near to him outwardly with their lips or with sacrifices only while their hearts were far from him. And so last week we looked at this subject of the inward state of the worshiper. And we argued last week from Scripture that genuine worship flows from reverence before God, joy in God, and love for God. That was what we looked at last week. But when we look to God's Word, we also discover fairly quickly that good intentions are not enough that God's Word also calls us to some specific things regarding the content of our worship, and that is what we want to look at this morning. Now, just as a reminder, I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago, I'm not planning to look at the specific elements in our bulletin or our, our wor- worship service, but I did do that a couple of years ago in some short videos, and so if you want to know why do we confess the Apostles' Creed or why do we have this element of our, our service You can go to our website and look under worship and then philosophy of worship, and you'll find a series of 12 short three to five minute videos on on each part of our service. But this morning, instead, I want to look more at the principles from Scripture that guide the content of our worship. And to do so, I want to begin by reading from Deuteronomy chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to look at Deuteronomy 12, the first 14 verses You can follow along as I read. This is God's Word. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation. There you shall go, and there You shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households 
and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, then, to the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you And your sons and your daughters, your male servants and female servants, the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. God, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that you would Use your word this morning to give us a greater understanding of you, that we might worship you as you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in college, my dorm hall had a fair bit of consistency over the years, and so we developed a pretty close community, the guys on that hall. And right across the hall from me lived Brian. Now, Brian came to me one night and he said, Chris, I would like to get your advice on my paper for my political science class. I said, well, sure. What would you like to ask? And so he explained the assignment. The assignment was to write a five-page paper on a specific question. I don't remember what the question was. I think something related to Aristotle's politics that the teacher had given. But Brian said to me, he said, Chris, I can answer this entire question in one paragraph. And so I think I'm going to turn in this paragraph for my essay, What Do You Think? And I said, well, Brian, that's a fine idea if you don't mind getting a failing grade. But I don't know that's a good idea otherwise. And and Brian said, well, why not? I can answer everything the professor wants me to answer in one paragraph. Why don't I just go ahead and do this? But as I argued, I said, look, the teachers left you much freedom in many ways. You can write in a number of different writing styles. You can go longer than five pages. You can answer the question in a number of ways. There's a lot of freedom you have, but the teacher has given you a few requirements that must be true of this paper, and if you want to uh, write a successful paper for him, you would do well to keep his requirements. Now, sad to say, my sage advice was not followed on that occasion, But I thought of this story when I thought about the content of our worship of God. Because much like the teacher in that class, while God has given us freedom and flexibilities in certain aspects of our worship, in other ways he has given us specific instructions to follow. And we must worship him as he directs in order for our worship to be honoring to him. And that is our main point this morning. In order to offer true and acceptable worship, we must worship God as He directs us in His Word. In order to offer true and acceptable worship, we must worship God as He directs us in His Word. Now, I want to look at two things this morning. First, I want to look at this claim that we must worship God as He directs, and then we'll look at why 
that is necessary in order to offer acceptable worship to God. So let's start with this claim that we must worship God as he directs in his word. We begin by reading from Deuteronomy chapter 12, and this really is the theme of this whole passage, that as Israel comes into the land, they are not to worship God in any way that seems right to them. You heard that stated directly in verse 8. Rather, God was giving them a particular pattern that is to guide their worship. He had set out the sacrifices that should be made. He had given commandments on how they were to be carried out, and he was going to give them a place in which they were to be made, and they were not to worship wherever they wanted or however they wanted, but according to God's commandments. Now, that was the theme of Deuteronomy 12, and we see that laid out in a number of ways and emphasized a number of times. But this same theme is emphasized all throughout the Old Testament. And I think you can see that by considering a quick Bible trivia question. So here's your chance to test your Old Testament knowledge. The trivia question is this, what do Israel before the golden calf, the priests Nadab and Abihu, and King Saul, after conquering the Amalekites, have in common. Israel before the golden calf, the priests Nadab and Abihu, and King Saul after conquering the Amalekites. And maybe you're saying, well, I remember some of those names. Not sure if I remember all of them. But what they have in common is this. Each one attempted to worship God, and and they were attempting to worship God, not pagan false gods, but each one did it in a way that God had not instructed King Saul was instructed to wipe out the Amalekites and all that they owned. But instead, he took their livestock as spoil, with the intent, he said, of offering all the best of it as sacrifices to the Lord. The problem, of course, was that these sacrifices in worship to the Lord were taken in direct disobedience to God's command, and so his worship was rejected. Leviticus 10 tells us that Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, we don't know exactly how Nadab and Abihu had brought their incense before the Lord, but what's clear is they did it in a way that God had not authorized. God had told them to do it in certain ways, and and the way they brought it was not one of them. And as a result, fire came out from the Lord, and they were struck dead. In Exodus 32, Aaron proclaimed a feast to Yahweh, a feast to the Lord, saying that the golden calf represented the gods who brought them out of Egypt. The issue was not so much that Aaron was setting up pagan gods, that he was attempting to worship the Lord in the way that seemed best to them, which went in direct contradiction to God's commandments. Now, Someone might pause and say, okay, well, those are three examples of worship that was offered not according to God's instructions, and they were all rejected, but all those guys you mentioned were pretty bad characters. Now, they, they were all uh, rejected and, and wicked people, and so was the real issue their hearts, or was the real issue the commands that they Crossed. In other words, would God really reject worship offered with good intentions in an upright heart if it's offered in the wrong way or against his commands? 
But if you're asking that question, we can consider another story from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is bringing the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. The ark of the Lord that was the seat of God's presence and the centerpiece of the tabernacle where Israel was to worship. And as David and his people are bringing the ark to Jerusalem, they're worshiping the Lord as they go. The text tells us that David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord as they went. So here is, is worship offered with, a, with joy and an upright heart before the Lord. However, they were proceeding in a way that went against God's instructions. See, God had told them that when they transport the ark, it was to be carried by poles. However, David had put the ark on a cart that was being pulled by oxen in a way that would jeopardize the holiness of of the ark. And sure enough, when the oxen stumbled, Uzzah put out his hand to stable the ark, but in putting his hand on the ark of the presence of the Lord, he was struck down dead. See, the problem was not who Israel was worshiping, nor was it that it was outward obedience only in this case. The problem was that it was offered in a way that did not follow God's instructions for worship. And so we see that even while the inward state of the worshiper is important, so too is the content of how we worship our God as we trace this through Scripture. And it's this emphasis that led men in the Reformation to formulate what became known as the regulative principle. The Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes this principle this way. It says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Maybe another way to put this would be that in our lives in general, we have much freedom in how we live our lives as long as we do not disobey God's instructions. But in worship, our freedom is narrower. In in worship, we are to worship the way God tells us to, not any way we want as long as it doesn't contradict one of God's commandments. God has set the pattern. God has set the rules for how we worship Him. Now, this principle is straightforward enough, but it can be confusing in practice, and so it's important to make sure that we make some necessary distinctions. And specifically, there are three distinctions or categories we need to make when we look at how Scripture guides our worship. The first is this. In our worship, there are the elements of our worship. The elements are the components of our worship service, and these must be directly commanded by God or clearly demonstrated in His Word. The elements of our worship include prayer and singing praise to God and reading Scripture and preaching the Word. These are, these are elements of our worship. And if we look to Scripture, I think we can see this. Scripture specifically commands that we read God's Word and preach God's Word, that we pray and sing praise to God, that we confess sin and confess our faith, and that we participate in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are all clearly directed by God's Word. And and in addition, God's Word clearly demonstrates taking up offerings, 
setting apart elders, deacons, and missionaries for the work of service they're called to, and at times hearing testimonies of God's work in the lives and ministries of his people. Those are all demonstrated in the gatherings of God's people in his word. And so these are the elements of our worship, but those are fixed by scripture, and God's people are not to add to or take away from these elements of worship. But there's a second category, a a distinction that should be made between these elements that are fixed by God's word and the forms of worship. The forms of worship are the way these elements are carried out. So we might ask questions like, which songs do we sing? And which scriptures are preached? Are sermons done in a topical series like this one or passage by passage through a book of the Bible like our Mark series? Which prayers are prayed? Are they written liturgical prayers or spontaneous prayers? Do we have liturgical responses and, and how, do we, how do we do that? These are the forms of worship or how the elements are carried out. And Scripture does not prescribe the six songs that we're to sing or the three prayers that we're to pray. So it's not fixed in that sense. Rather, these forms must be carried out in line with scriptural truth and principles. So the songs that we choose must be biblical in their content and their truth. And the prayers that we pray and the sermons that we deliver and the way scripture is preached must all be in line with and adhere to the truth of God's word and reflect the character of the God that we worship. But within those guidelines, there is more freedom and flexibility than with the elements of worship. So you have the elements of worship that are fixed by God's word. You have the forms of worship, which must be guided by the truth of God's God's word. And then finally, there are the circumstances of worship. The circumstances of worship are the details about how we go about what we do. What time do we meet for worship? Do we sit or stand? Do we use projectors or hymnals? Which instruments accompany the songs? These are, these are circumstances of worship. And there's even greater freedom in these matters with the qualification that they should be wise and suitable for God's people to worship him. The confession puts it this way. These circumstances of worship should be done according to the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of his word. And so we have this pattern, elements of worship that are fixed by God's word. The way we carry that out, the forms of worship must be guided by the truth of God's word and the circumstances of worship, the details which must be wise for suitable worship. Now this pattern ensures that worship is done as God directs, but also leaves it with a beautiful variety. So that as we go from church to church, Ligon Duncan says, Reformed worship does not and should not produce one cookie-cutter service of worship. In fact, Duncan, uh, Ligon Duncan, I think, uh, puts this well. He reviews his travels around the globe. And as he does so, he says, You will find the same elements of worship carried out within biblical forms with culturally prudent circumstances. You will find it in the 19th century architecture of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And you will find it just across town at Christ Liberation Church, an African-American church committed to Reformed worship. You will find it in Alonzo Ramirez's congregation in Cajamarca, Peru, and in the congregations planted by Ken Tombing in India. 
You will find it in St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, Scotland, and you will find it in Augustine Mufun's congregation in Malawi, Africa. I might add that you will find it here in our worship on the north end of our building and in the Swahili service on the south end of our building. It is a beautiful and rich variety of worship that takes place within God's commandments and these elements of worship that are fixed by his word within the boundaries and guidelines of God's truth and in prudent ways as we carry out the details. And so this is, this is what God's word sets out for us to guide our worship, reminding us that worship must engage our hearts and not be external only, but must also be according to his guidelines in his word in order to be acceptable to him. But having looked at Scripture's emphasis and, and content on this, I want to second ask the question, why must our worship be done according to God's instructions? Why is this so important? And, and to start, we probably would say, well, there's a common sense principle here. If your wife tells you the kinds of things she likes and the kinds of things that offend her and you love your wife, surely you're going to give her the things she likes and avoid the things she hates. That's how you would... You would act towards someone you love. And so the same would be true with our God, that we would honor him the way that he chooses and not in the way he doesn't. But that principle, while a start, is not enough to understand why it is so important for us to worship according to God's instructions. There's an even more important reason, and that is this. The way we worship will shape how we think about God. In other words, what we pray and how we pray, what we sing and how we sing, the content and the attitude of our worship together will shape what we think about God and what he is like and who he is. Ligon Duncan puts it this way, in contrast to all human creativity and initiative, the Bible is to be our rule for how we worship because the Bible is our rule for how to think about God and how we worship impacts our concept of God. As it turns out, this seems to be God's logic in Scripture as well. Consider two passages in Scripture talking about our worship of God. First, consider the Ten Commandments. Specifically, consider the Second Commandment. You remember that the First Commandment declares that we're to worship God and God alone. And then the Second Commandment gives us a, a, a rule about how we are to worship Him. We are not to worship Him with images to not make any images in our worship of the Lord. And, and maybe the question comes into your mind, well, why? Why did God prohibit the making of images? Well, Deuteronomy 4, 15 tells us why God gave us that rule. Moses says to Israel, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, any figure in heaven above or on earth beneath. See, whenever God gives us a command, we also look and see why he's given us a command. And what God's telling us here is that be because God has not shown you any form to capture what he is like, and his nature and his glory, any figure you make will be from your own imagination or from the created world. And therefore, it will neither be accurate nor sufficient to capture his majesty and his glory. 
And so God's saying, I didn't show you any form. If you come up with your own form, you're worshiping a God of your own imagination, not God as he truly is. It will not capture adequately who I am. And so worshiping God wrongly through images will lead you to worship the wrong God, the wrong conception of him. I think the second passage we can look at that shows us this is Jesus' conversation about worship with the woman from Samaria at the well. You remember John chapter 4? Jesus shows her that he knows her sin. And in realizing that Jesus is a prophet, the woman asks him a question about worship. She says, now the Jews say we should worship at at the mountain in, in Israel, but we say we should worship at the mountain in Samaria. So which is it? But if you look at Jesus' answer, you will see that he doesn't answer her question directly. He doesn't tell her which mountain to worship. In fact, what he says is the time is coming when the location of worship will not be important. But he does give her a principle that should give her the answer she's looking for. Because in verse 22, this is what Jesus says. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. What is Jesus saying there? We know from Deuteronomy chapter 12 that the Samaritans were wrong to worship on their own mountain. It was against God's instructions. But the root of the problem for those in Samaria here is that they have rejected much of the Old Testament. And in rejecting much of the Old Testament and God's word and God's promises and neglecting Scripture's instructions and worshiping God their own way at their own mountain... They were worshiping a God that they did not actually know. They were worshiping what they didn't know because they had disobeyed his instructions and neglected his word. And so, again, the key principle here is that the way we worship, whether we worship God according to his instructions or not, is a matter of whether we know God truly and rightly as he is and as he has revealed himself to us. For the Samaritans, worship on their mountain was both a result and a reflection of the fact that they did not know God and his word, having rejected large portions of it. And hence, their worship was not in truth. I think about this as I think about all of the times that I have had the privilege of interviewing people or hearing about uh, their testimony in faith, but also some of their struggles with faith and about growing up in various churches and It is striking to me how often someone will say or tell me a a struggle that they have with the Lord. Maybe it's a struggle of feeling like uh, God is always upset with them or angry uh, with them or is, is, is is a judge just watching for their failures. Or maybe it is thinking that God is always loving and, and God doesn't really care too much what I do because he always loves me. And what's interesting is how often those impressions can be traced back to the worship of the churches that they grew up in and the way they worshiped and the emphasis and the tone of that worship because the way we worship teaches us about God. And that's why God is so concerned to mark out how he is to be worshiped, that we worship by reading his word and preaching his word and singing praise to him and praying to him as he's directed using the sacraments he's given us so that we will know him as he is. And I hope, as you worship here at Westminster, that you will often hear us talk about how we should hold everything we do here up to Scripture. 
But I also hope you realize that the reason we say that isn't because we're just a a very strict and literal church or we like things black and white or something along those lines. Not at all. It's because we long to worship God in truth. And the only way to know Him and to worship Him for who He is is to let Him and His Word fix the elements of our worship, guide the forms of our worship, and inform the circumstances of our worship that it might be acceptable to Him. So that is the standard for the content of our worship. Now as we come to an end, yes, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to give you three applications for our worship based on the principles that we've learned. So the first application for us this morning is this. The content of our worship is so important. We hold everything up to Scripture and focus on the content of our our worship and holding it before His Word. However... It is a subtle and very easy shift in temptation to start focusing on and enjoying the way we worship instead of the God we worship. D.A. Carson is a theologian and commentator, and he put it this way. He said, you cannot find excellent worship until you stop trying to find excellent worship and pursue God himself. God is the source of our delight and our joy, not the worship on its own sake. And then Carson warns, he says, despite the protestations, one sometimes wonders if we are beginning to worship our worship instead of worship our God. And when I think about Westminster, we desire that our worship would be excellent because we want it to be suitable and and honoring to a holy God. Excellence is is a principle that ought to characterize our worship. However, precisely because we seek Worship that is excellent in order to reflect a holy and glorious God, it can be even more tempting for us to start enjoying the great worship, enjoying the music, enjoying the good sermon, rather than the God that they point to. It's said that Jonathan Edwards was so concerned on this point that he would deliver his sermons in monotone, making sure to stare at the bell rope in the back of the sanctuary and not make eye contact with his congregation, because he wanted to make sure that they were not moved at all by his passion or delivery or excellent sermon, but only by the content of Scripture and the glory of the God that it revealed. Now, as you know, I haven't taken up that practice, (laughs) but I have the same concern, and I hope that you never leave going home thinking, boy, Chris just had a great sermon, that was really well done rather marveling at the God that Scripture pointed us to. And I can guarantee you that Frank and Floyd would wish the same thing, that you would not go home saying, boy, that was a great organ postlude today or a great choir anthem. But rather, we have such a beautiful, glorious God, and the music sure reminded me of Him today. So our first concern is that our focus is not on our worship for its own sake, or on how much we we like it or love it, but on the God who is worthy to receive all our praise. That's our first application. Our second application is this. I would remind us that while it is of utmost importance to worship according to God's word and standards and not according to our preferences and the way we like to, if we are not careful, it can be just as easy for us to elevate our preferences to biblical principles in order to worship the way we like to. 
It shouldn't really be a surprise to us that this is a temptation because we all have associations and preferences based on long habits and experiences that shape us. Think about your vacations. And how many of you have gone to the same beach house for, for two decades or maybe gone to the same, same vacation retreat center for, for decades and then one year you can't go to that place. The house is under renovation or the, the, the retreat center is closed and you have to do something else. And, and we say, boy, you know, that vacation, it just wasn't the same this year. It wasn't at the house we've always done it at. And if we're not careful, we can start to respond the same way with with worship, that a certain style of music or hymns or liturgies become part of our worship and help us focus on the Lord. And that's a good thing. We can delight in that. We should delight in that. But we shouldn't elevate that to a biblical principle and think that if we don't do it that way, it's not honoring to God anymore. The same thing can happen with associations. My guess is that a a number of you probably carved a pumpkin uh, this year at some point. Carving pumpkins is a fun activity. For some, it's even an art form. But it wasn't for my old neighbor for Haiti, for whom a pumpkin, especially a carved pumpkin, was closely associated with witchcraft. And so it was easy for him to make that association and say, therefore, anyone who touches a pumpkin is disobeying God and is associated with, with witchcraft. Well, in a similar way, Maybe certain instruments or maybe certain styles of music or certain liturgies for us are associated with, a, with dead worship from our childhood or with, with something that is worldly or ungodly. And, 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 and that's, that's fine for us to say, I'm uncomfortable drawing near to that. But we have to make sure we don't make that into a universal theological principle that anyone who uses that instrument or anyone who uses that liturgy is dead worship or dishonoring to God. And so this caution is our second application. Because to confuse this line and to make our preferences into theological principles will hinder our fellowship with the wider body of God's people. And it will weaken our consciences when we have an opportunity to gather with believers across cultures and backgrounds. So that's our second application. Finally, one more for you this morning. Our concern throughout has been to consider God's directions for how to worship him. But if we want to ask, how does God tell us to approach him in worship? What is God's prerequisite for offering him acceptable worship? There is one clear prerequisite for God honoring worship that's all over the pages of the New Testament. And it's this. God requires us to approach him through his son, Jesus Christ. Think of John chapter 2, verse 19, where Jesus says that his body is the new temple, meaning that our access into the presence of God is through him. Maybe you think of 1 Timothy 2, 5, which reminds us that there is one God, only one God who deserves our worship and our praise, our exclusive loyalty. But just as there is one God, there is only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. There is only one way for the gap to be bridged and for sinful human beings to come into the presence of God and offer Him worship, and it is through Jesus Christ. Perhaps no book makes this clearer than the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9.9 says that at the tabernacle, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, can purify our consciences. Which leads Hebrews 10, verse 19, to conclude, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of hope. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. And so the whole context of our worship, drawing near to God, gathering together as his people, the confidence we have to do that comes through Christ, through his blood shed for us. God has appointed him as the mediator, our way into his presence. He has appointed him as the full, sufficient, complete answer to our sin so that we can draw near to him. If you ask the question, how in the world can sinners like us offer worship that is acceptable to a holy God? The answer is through faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. So the question for us is really pretty clear this morning, isn't it? Do you know Christ? Have you repented of of sin, of, of living your way, and have you submitted to him in faith? Are you resting upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to you in the gospel? And and if not, you certainly cannot expect to offer worship that would be acceptable to God. You certainly cannot expect to worship as he has directed according to his word. But if so, on the flip side, if we have come through faith in Jesus Christ, nothing will give us greater joy or greater zeal or greater confidence or greater humble awe in our worship than fixing our gaze on Christ and magnifying his glory, and coming through him, and in him, and because of him, with our eyes staring at him. That is how we offer worship that is acceptable to God. So may he be our full focus, and confidence, and joy this morning. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word, and for the principles in it. And how I pray that we would follow your word and your instructions in it so that we might know you for who you are and honor you and worship you as you deserve. Father, we would pray this would be true of our worship. We pray too that as we come and gather together that our focus and all that we do would be on you and and all of the, the music and the prayers and the sermon and everything that happens would be conduits for pointing our hearts and our minds and our souls to you and how I pray that Jesus would be our great treasure and our way into your presence to offer you worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.